This podcast is brought to you by the Toronto School of Management's NCA Exam Prep Program. The TSM NCA Prep Program offers internationally trained lawyers courses taught by practicing lawyers in Canada, expertly designed study guides, exclusive networking opportunities with top Canadian law firms, and employability sessions arming you with all the tools you need in order to hit the ground running in your pursuit to practicing law in Canada. To find out more about the program, you can email ncaprep at torontosom.ca. Welcome to A Shot of Life, a podcast aimed at highlighting the personal journeys of professionals and entrepreneurs in Canada, taking a snapshot of the person behind their professional title. I'm your host, Anton Haswell, and this is episode 18 of our National Committee on Accreditation Journey series. Our 18th guest is Gina Alexandris. For over 20 years, Gina Alexandris has been inspiring and supporting individuals and organizations to strategically define their hopes and achieve their goals. As the Senior Program Director of Ryerson's Law Practice Program, or LPP, Gina is responsible for the development, implementation, and general management of this innovative transition year training program for lawyer licensing candidates in Ontario. In this role, she is responsible for ensuring academic excellence and the quality of service and program delivery for participants and outreach to hundreds of contributing members of the legal profession. Gina has also been actively involved with the development and recent launch of Ryerson's new innovative law school. With a passion for adult education, leadership, and diversity, she completed her Master's of Education in 2012 and received her coaching certification in 2017. Gina developed and directed the award-winning Internationally Trained Lawyers Program at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and spent more than 12 years with Osgoode Hall Law School of York University, first as Director of Career Services, followed by nine years as the Assistant Dean of Student Services. Between 2013 and 2014, Gina was the Director, Strategic Planning and Knowledge Management for the Legal Services Division of the Ministry of the Attorney General of Ontario. Following her graduation from Osgoode Hall Law School, Gina began her legal career practicing family and civil litigation in Toronto. Gina is a board member of Costi Immigrant Services, Young Women in Law, and the Hellenic Canadian Lawyers Association. She is also a proud Greek-Canadian soccer mom living with her family in Toronto. Hi, Gina. Hello, Anton. Thanks to uh, be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for agreeing to do it. I've been kind of doing this now for a couple of months, and, and I've gotten to kind of pseudo meet lots of people from all over the world really which has been really exciting and now that I've managed to do that I'm sort of branching into different areas so I'm getting a sense of what listeners are um, interested in learning uh, about and so I've had Deborah Wolf on from the NCA and uh, really excited to have you on Um, and for those who don't know Gina is the director of the Ryerson LPP program And normally, Gina, I start these podcasts by asking internationally trained lawyers where they're from and what inspired them to get into law and then what inspired them to do so here in Canada. Because, you know, you're a bit of a different guest, um, I thought it might be good for you to shed a little bit of light on, you know, your journey to becoming the director of the Ryerson LPP program. Well, thank you, Anton. And uh, I'm very excited to share uh, this uh, podcast with you and with uh, our listeners uh, out there. So in terms of a little bit about me, um, the, the nutshell or the, the summary is that I, uh, I am uh, born and have been raised in Toronto uh, as a child of Greek immigrants. So very much that first generation experience. Neither of my parents had gone on to 
post-secondary or finished high school for that matter. And so I was uh, the first to go, the second in, our, in my family to go to university, and then the first, uh, by all means, uh, in the family to go to law school. So that there's something about the immigrant experience that, that resonates with me and has always resonated with me for a long time. Um, but I did go to school here, and uh, when I graduated, I practiced uh, civil litigation and family law. Now, I went into law school uh, with, again, the immigrant experience was very much relevant to me. It was because of my parents' experience with a lack of lawyers that they could communicate with, lawyers that they would understand them, that motivated me to to go into uh, legal education, into legal practice. I wanted them to, them and others, to have um, a more positive experience than they actually had at the at a particular time with a particular scenario that they were in. So I practiced family law for about four years, but the reality had been that throughout elementary school, uh, secondary school, and even in university, uh, I had wanted to be in education, a teacher in some way. And I got sidetracked, if you will, because of that legal experience of my parents, that legal situation, I'd gotten sidetracked, but I'm glad I did. Because what that did was allow me to combine my passion for legal education, I'll go into that in a minute, uh, with um, a passion for education and professional development with, uh, with the legal profession. So after practicing for four years, and I loved my clients, I loved the people that I worked with, but the work just wasn't really satisfying for me personally. And I found the opportunity to go back to my alma mater at Osgoode Hall Law School and start the career development office uh, for the very first time at that university, at that law school. Um, within about three or four years, I moved into the role of assistant dean of students and dealt with uh, a variety of different aspects from admissions to programs to exchanges to grading um, to financial aid, career services, et cetera. And I did that for about nine more years. So for a total of about 12 years at, um, at Osgoode. And then I think the part where the, the point where I really sort of um, started doing more and more with internationally trained lawyers. There was a provincial funding opportunity given to the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law to start something called the Internationally Trained Lawyers Program. And at that point, um, they were looking for somebody to start the program and get it up and running. And I was contacted and I thought, you know, I realized in my work at Oscar that there was a gap for those who were coming from other jurisdictions and needing to, uh, to practice here and to get accredited and licensed to practice in Ontario. And uh, it was time for me to start something new. And I started that program, the ITLP, the Internationally Trained Lawyers Program, um, and worked there for about four or five years. Um, after a couple of stops uh, uh, through, after that at MAG, the Ministry of the Attorney General, Ryerson was then creating a new program as well. And, and for people who are listening, um, you know, six or seven or eight, pardon me, 10 years ago, the only two Ontario, Toronto universities that have legal uh, or law schools, legal education were York for Osgoode Hall Law School and U of T. And so over the last little while, I wondered what was Ryerson, the third uh, law school, the third university in Toronto planning in terms of uh, legal education. And mm -hmm. I that they were putting in a bid for something called the Law Practice Program, which was going to be a post-law school, and we'll talk more about it, uh, program. And again, the interest in doing something new, creating something brand new, um, being sort of a change agent, if you will, uh, and working with um, still with people that I loved who were new in their early on in their careers uh, motivated me to put my hat in the ring. And working with um, a wonderful managing director, Chris Bentley, the former attorney general in Ontario, and I brought on board, we created a team uh, of about 10 or 11 people. Um, we started, now I guess it's we're in the seventh year, our law practice program at Ryerson. And uh, um, partway through that, the university engaged me to also think about working with the law school, the creation of the law school. I'll leave that for, that's another discussion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That you know, some of what we were doing in the LPP sort of translated to how we wanted to uh, educate future lawyers, uh, and and so that's where I am now. And uh, we're in year seven of the law practice program. Wow, such an interesting journey, Gina, um, and and a really like I remember when I was in law school in the UK, 
the LPP program was sort of just new. And it, it I know that the sentiment amongst some of the internationally trained that I was, you know, even studying with was, wow, this is amazing, because all we had heard about um, is a barrier that existed mm -hmm. in articling and getting that experiential training requirement done. And, you know, there's forums online and you could, there are people who are domestically trained basically saying, you may as well just never pursue a career in law because you'll never get articling. So um, don't even do it. And then this LPP thing showed up and we're like, oh, interesting. So, um, I mean, I guess it's important, I, I suppose, um, for you to explain what the LPP program is and um, what the function of the LPP program is and what your role within the program is. All of that would be really, really useful, I think, for everybody to know. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you, you, know, you, you mentioned um, there is still some, uh, some misunderstanding or mis, uh, miscommunication about what the options are. I think mm -hmm. I don't make any assumptions on what your listeners know or don't know. So I'm just going to remind all of us just to bring us all into the, the same context that if you are an internationally trained lawyer and you're in the process of thinking about or trying to get into the process of becoming licensed here in Ontario, it is a two-step process. So first you need to get the accreditation by the National Committee of Accreditation and your previous speakers have spoken about that. But that is the equivalency, if you will. So you need to first go through the NCA to have the equivalency to a common law, Canadian common law degree. And that involves a couple of, uh, a few exams. First of all, a review of your work, um, your prior uh, legal education, any prior work that you've done. And the NCA is a body that will um, come up with whether what you have to do to be able to qualify as a uh, equivalent graduate to a Canadian common law degree. And I keep repeating common law because there's different paths or requirements for anybody who's gone through the civil system. That's page one, Anton, as, as you and I know, but others sometimes forget. <laughs> yeah. The second part is the licensing part. And so once you are sort of at the same stage as all Canadian law school graduates, then you need to go through, a and I'll use the phrase, a provincial licensing um, uh, requirement. And I'm going to focus, Anton, if you don't mind, on Ontario. That's mm -hmm. sort of familiar with. That's where we are. And there are different, just to let me suffice it to say, there are different licensing expectations in each of the provinces. So if you are listening and you're thinking about British Columbia or um, uh, or Alberta, you need to look into those specific expectations and requirements. So our focus, Anton, if you don't mind, will be on Ontario. Yes. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Yeah. So uh, the National Committee uh, will, as I said, um, bring you to that equivalency of all other Canadian law graduates. The next stage is the Law Society, our, regulate, our regulatory body, the Law Society of Ontario, the LSO, and I might use that acronym from time to time. They regulate paralegals and lawyers in Ontario. And so part of their uh, requirement, their expectation, is to ensure that um, new lawyers, and I'll focus on lawyers, not paralegals, mm -hmm. uh, are qualified to serve the public interest as lawyers. And in Ontario, when you are called to the bar, when you officially become a lawyer, the the rights and responsibilities that you have are both as a barrister and a solicitor. And I'm stressing that only because in some jurisdictions, once you graduate law school, you may have to choose a path of either, either the barrister path or the solicitor path. Here in Ontario, it's a combined, um, um, a combined certification. When you qualify with the Law Society of Ontario as a lawyer in Ontario, you can either do barrister's work or solicitor's work or both. And I think it's important just to, to differentiate and to remember that. So the Law Society of Ontario requires um, a few different components. And, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in November of 2020. I always remind individuals to please, please, please check for any updates because things sometimes change, right? Over the 22 years in this uh, 22 plus years, um, things have changed. So as it currently stands, the LSO, the Law Society's requirements to get called to the bar in Ontario, um, require both a substantive component, which at present is the completion of two exams, your barrister exam and your solicitor exam, two separate exams, and that's run by the LSO. 
The other component is the experiential piece. And this is where the law practice program comes up. The experiential piece can be done in a few different ways. It used to be traditionally um, seven years ago or eight years ago, the only way to complete the law society's experiential component was through what we now refer, what is referred to as articling, working within an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, um, for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to, to speak to, they wanted to open up another uh, additional pathway. And so what they did was create this opportunity called the Law Practice Program, which is an equivalent pathway to licensing. It's the equivalent pathway. It's an it's equivalent to articling. And they've also um, opened up something called an integrated practice curriculum, which means a couple of schools only, um, Lakehead up in uh, Northern Ontario, and most recently this year, Ryerson, um, have integrated experiential opportunities within their three-year degree so that when a student from either of those two schools finishes, they don't need to then article or do the LPP. They've got the qualifications necessary for the, the experiential piece. So let's just stop and say articling and LPP are the two things that anybody who has finished law school in Canada and finished law school elsewhere and has been accredited uh, through the NCA uh, has to do as part of their licensing process. That plus your licensing exams, those are required of all candidates in the law society's uh, licensing process. That's a really good synopsis of of essentially the journey. And you know, Gina, I I um I deal a lot with individuals, candidates who are going through the NCA process, and I think there's a tendency for those candidates to think of the NCA because it's, you know, the first thing you have to do as sort of a be all end all. Um, Like, you know, I have to finish these exams, exams, exams. Um, But I think it's always been, it's a bit of a theme of the podcast that's carried on through is that um, there's a longer view here and it does include experiential training. And it's really important, I think, for people because I've started to see people asking questions. What is the LPP? Um, and actually, just today, somebody posted on Facebook. Um, I was looking at the LPP program and it, it says it costs $30,000. Is this true? Um, so maybe, yeah, like, can, can you shed a little bit on that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So let me explain the because that, that is not true at all. So I'm <laughs> sure that's coming up from, and please, I'd, I'd like to sort of differentiate the Ryerson Law Practice Program, the Ryerson LPP is different. It's a post legal education experiential piece, mm-hmm. um, different from the JD program at Ryerson and six other law schools. So you can... And let me actually also just clarify, for some internationally uh, educated lawyers, they may not realize that in Ontario, legal education is typically a second degree. So you typically will have another uh, undergraduate program, and then you will go into law school. I say that only because many of our candidates uh, who are internationally trained uh, have gone directly into law school from secondary school. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a distinction. To your point, when people are in the NCA, they may forget about that previous requirement within Ontario, that there is a previous degree that they have to do. So what they may have seen, uh, although I don't think it's 30,000, is the Ryerson Law School, which is separate from the LPP. They're at different stages. One is sort of the first part of uh, of a student's journey. The second is a post, um, post-law school uh, licensing component. And I happy to go into a little bit more about the LPP if you'd like at this time. Yeah, that would be great, Gina. And I, I think, yeah, just everybody listening, this is all about the LPP program. Very few, if any, candidates will likely be looking at the Ryerson JD program. So it's important to make that distinction. And Absolutely. yeah, and, and, and please do, if you could get into, um, you know, walking me through sort of what happens on the LPP, things like how long is it, um, cost, and what candidates can kind of expect. Um, when they're absolutely yeah absolutely thank you Anton and um, the one the one um, distinction if I may is if you are a civil law uh, uh, graduate from somewhere in a civil jurisdiction you may very well and I've known internationally educated civil civil lawyers who decided to go through a full JD three-year JD program here uh, in Ontario so that is Mm -hmm. a possibility 
we'll be looking at um, a university at a law school. But let's leave that. I'm assuming that our listeners are uh, common law trained, uh, or if they're civil lawyers and have done uh, one of the master's programs that's available to then get the equivalency through the NCA. So what's the LPP? Even though Ryerson won the bid from the Law Society seven years ago, um, we're not an educational, we're a training program, we're that experiential program. We are more like the firms or the um, uh, employers who are training you in articling than we are like a university setting or like a law school setting. When Mm -hmm. we uh, are candidates and we always say, we are work, not school. Let me explain what we mean. Mm -hmm. We are an month program. So when you start with us typically end of August and it's four months of training and I'll explain the training in more detail and then four months of a work placement. And the idea of the training is to build skills and competencies specifically that are important to and relevant to um, getting called to the bar in Ontario and also to be able to build those skills and competencies so that you're able to move into a work placement and sort of as they hit the ground running, that you're ready to go with a a legal employer in Ontario. So the four months of the training is, we reference it as a virtual simulation of a law firm. The the mindset that we need internationally trained lawyers to come, and not just internationally trained, because we have candidates, half of our our, our, uh, intake is from Canadian law schools and half our intake roughly are from internationally trained lawyers. Mm. And Anybody who takes the LPP really needs to shift their perspective from their school mind, if that's where they have just sort of recently uh, finished. And even if you've done the the NCA, you're still in exam mode, right? Hmm. Uh, This is not about exams or about studying in that way. It is about working. And what do we mean by that? So in the four months, you are put into a group of four to six people, uh, randomly selected. They will be your firm mates. They will be the the firm that you work with for four months on a virtual simulation basis. So our candidates before this pandemic hit, uh, were working virtually uh, for the past seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, We're quite, so they they were, you know, our alums are quite used to this whole uh, concept of remote work um, just because of that experience. You're put together with a firm. And the other important thing, together with your colleagues, you are paired with uh, with two mentors, one for two months and then another for another two months. And they act as your supervisors for the four months that you are uh, in the training component. And when I said earlier, Anton, that we are work, not school, what candidates are doing in the program um, is working on simulated files that subject experts from the legal profession in Ontario have created. And they're, they're working on them, not so much to develop the substantive knowledge, because we're anticipating you already have that, mm-hmm. both from your previous legal education, uh, whether it's a Canadian school or whether it is a, a school internationally, and then the NCA for the Canadian content, that we're expecting that you have. But our program is really focused on the competencies and the skills that the National Committee, sorry, that the Law Society has indicated are required for practice in Ontario. So what are those, Anton? We focus on uh, professionalism and ethics, communications, and that's both verbal and written, research, both legal and factual research, analysis, practice management, and client management. So I'll give you an example. we we work with a group at Ryerson that I just love. It's called the Live Action Simulation at Ryerson. And they actually hire and train um, actors to play the role, you know, in different departments, they are they they play different roles. For us, they play clients. So in your family client, sorry, in your family file, for example, your firm may represent either the, in our case, a mother and a father, either the mother father half will represent one half will represent the other so what are the things that you're going to be doing in that file for example you will first meet with the client to get some information what does that do that helps you build your client development skills it helps you build that client interviewing skills it also helps you build fact gathering because from a client as many of you who have practiced elsewhere know you need to be able to build that rapport to be able to get facts from them that will help you in assessing what their file is about and what you can do with that. From that initial meeting, you might have to go off and do 
research. Um, so using, we, we have relationships with both LexisNexis and Westlaw to do some legal research and come up with a legal research memo. Your supervisor will be reviewing uh, some of this material, not all, but some of this material and giving you feedback so you can then develop when you, your next memo comes up. But then you may have to start drafting the pleadings in the file. So you may have to do the application or the response in the family file. And there might be a negotiation that you have to do with another firm uh, to, uh, to resolve a, an issue. Um, you may have to go to a motion to do a motion before uh, a judge, in our case, an assessor. Uh, and, and again, what is that doing? That's preparing you in terms of your analytical skills. It's preparing you in terms of your communication skills. It's preparing you in terms of your client management because you're trying to manage their expectations. Um, and and that, that one file is not the only thing candidates have to work with, Anton. That file is interspersed with other files. So we start with one file and then we layer on the other files that you have to work on. So the Law Society requires us to build those simulated files in family, civil, criminal law, wills and estates, uh, real estate, business law, and um, administrative law. Our file currently is a, an immigration file. Mm. And if you remember, Anton, one of the competencies that I talked about was practice management. And I think this is you know, one of the things we'll talk about is how to get ready. Um, thinking about your work as a lawyer, not as a law student, when you're when you're working as a lawyer, even in our simulated uh, virtual um, scenarios, we actually get you to work with a practice uh, management software system called Clio, C-L-I-O, mm-hmm. and dock at your time because it's important to get into that habit of understanding where your time is spent. Um, it's important just for your own ability to, to juggle and manage priorities. But as well, if you ultimately want to charge for your work, not in our simulated file, but down the road, you'll need to be able to have that that, um, skill and ability to be able to dock at your time, review what you've spent on on a file, and be able to charge a client appropriately. Those are all elements of our files that we get you to work on. And and I'll I'll say one more thing, Anton, then I'll stop. Um, (laughs) The the additional um, component. We're very much uh, benefiting our our managing director, as I said, Chris Benley, also wears another hat, which is the managing director of the Legal Innovation Zone at Ryerson. And a lot of what we've been doing since day one is to really get candidates thinking not just about what the practice of law is like now, but how can they make it more effective? How can they make it more um, efficient? How can they make it more creative and impactful to really help clients of the future. Fundamentally, that's what lawyers do is to help problem solve with clients. And thinking about things creatively is important. So the other file work that our candidates have to do is a business plan. They really work with their firm mates, the other four to six people, to come up with a business plan for their firm. So if they were to go out and work on their own down the road, what would they have to think about? What's the Mm. market? element? What's the financial element? What is the um, technology element that they have to think about? What purpose are they serving? Uh, And and that's really some of the conversations that we have as well as part of the law uh, practice program. So that's the first part. And I haven't gone to the second part. Let me just pause and ask you if you have any questions on that, Anton. (laughs) Thanks, Gina. Yeah, that's great. Um, you, You had mentioned that um, when you're operating within this virtual firm, sometimes a supervisor um, or your, your, I suppose, you know, pseudo articling principle or something would review some of your work some of the time. Is that supervisor um, a simulation or do you, ha- do you actually have um, supervisors monitoring the work of the students? Every year we, um, so as I mentioned, uh, subject experts from the profession create the, the simulated files. But then we have members of the profession who are so enthusiastic to help future colleagues, future lawyers. We, um, we bring on mentors, we, the, the phrase for them is mentors. And our typical, you know, we have people who the average is about 15 to 20 years of experience in Ontario's legal profession. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our minimum is three, but we usually sort of say a minimum of five years. 
um, with a maximum. Some of them have over 25 years experience in the legal profession. You are paired with one person for the first two months and then another person for the next two months. And we, we switch it up intentionally because we want everybody to have the opportunity to have, quote unquote, two supervisors, a different voice, a different mm-hmm. experience, um, different background. One might be more um, more casual. The other might be more formal. One might be a solicitor. The other might be a litigator. One might be um, very, um, uh, very chatty. The other might be a little bit more um, quieter. And, and I think it's important for all of us to recognize what it's like to work with different people. So it's intentional, but it is an actual lawyer in Ontario who reviews their work. And when I said, Anton, they review some of their work. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is work, not school. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes when we're in work, we do our work and there's a few different types of reviews or assessments that we're expecting of our candidates. So some of their work is um, reviewed and given feedback by the mentors. Some of the work is actually assessed by the mentors. Some of their work is actually assessed by separate lawyers that we bring in specifically for assessment. So when we do trials, when the candidates do the trials, uh, we bring in additional members of the profession who will review the trials and give their feedback and their assessment. Um, So we, we work with over 200 lawyers in the province who come in as mentors, subject experts and assessors uh, to help our candidates on a regular basis. And so that part is very much, um, you know, uh, it's, you know, we used to say it's for the profession and by the profession Mm. really has the feedback and the support of practicing lawyers in Ontario. Wow, great. Yeah. And and just one, one last question for me before you get onto the second part of the LPP. Um, You said there's 46 Firm mates, is that correct? Uh, four to six firm. So we oh, have four to six. Sorry, yeah, okay, no, four no, no. to six. We try and keep it as a small firm. So uh, mm-hmm. over two hundred people each year. Um, this year we have two hundred seventy people in our program, and so we divide them into firms of anywhere from four to right. six people. And the mentors work with each firm, so it's sort of a small group of anywhere from you know five to seven people when you include the mentor. Right. Okay. And so I guess just my own curiosity, and practically speaking, um, you, you listed various areas of law that um, the Law Society requires um, the candidates to oversee files for. And I'm wondering, do they oversee these files or, or deal with these files themselves individually, or do they work in tandem and sort of say, you take the family file, I'm going to work on criminal like, how does that work? Like, you know, if it's a firm of, let's say, four people, how often are they in communication with each other? Great question. So let me give you sort of a, there's two parts to that answer. Um, the first is that some of the work is expected to be done as a firm. So for example, when they're meeting with a client, they typically meet all together. And what we say, half of them will take the lead on doing the questions and, and, uh, and, and, and engaging with a client. The other half will be taking notes because part of a legal practice includes note taking. And we give you some training in that, but being able to take the notes carefully and keep them updated is is a critical uh, requirement. So there's an example where the firm does the client interview and the notes, although they split it, they all have to sort of be prepared for it uh, in advance. There's some things that we ask them to do individually. So for example, it may very well be that the... um, draft application. We want them all to get that experience. They all have to do and submit a draft application. So most of the work tends to be individual, but there's a lot of, uh, of preparation that goes with, uh, with uh, the firm together. And how do they do it? All of it, even before COVID, um, was remote. So we have people who are taking our program from across the province and mentors from across the province as well. And we always have been doing it through uh, through web conferencing tools. So the typical in a typical week, um, the firm will meet with each other two or three times to either prepare for a client meeting or to review some of the work that they have to do or to talk about strategy on a file. Then they'll have one meeting a week for about an hour with their mentor where they'll talk about the files that they've just worked on, get some feedback. And they'll also have a topic on a professionalism theme that they will have to review uh, in advance for that conversation. In addition to that, they have meetings with their clients. Um, I'd say there's about two meetings per week at the beginning 
with clients, different client files. Uh, Chris and I have a managing partners meeting with everybody on Monday mornings. And then the, the file experts, the partners in the files, come in once or twice over those four months to do updates on the files. So our wills uh, expert, Ian Hull, will come in and, um, and do a live webinar to answer any questions about where the file might be at that time. Our criminal people will come in and uh, talk about the defense and the crown side of it, et cetera. So a, a typical week for, if I can, would it help maybe just to visualize what a typical week is for our candidates? Is that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, if you think about work, not school, a typical week, uh, Monday, we'll start off with your managing partners meeting, an hour where we have that exchange with candidates, uh, you know, we'll give an update on things that, that are going to be important to look, look forward to, what's coming up, we'll answer some questions, if people have had challenges the week before, we'll, we'll have that, think about a big firm meeting. Um, but then within, you know, a little while, they may get two or three emails throughout the Monday, where they have to respond and something might be uh, in need of a response tomorrow. Another thing might be in need of a response next week. That's your practice management, diarizing, keeping a calendar of things, um, doing the work itself, meeting with your, your firm members. Uh, on Tuesday, you might have a meeting with the subject expert in the real estate file. Uh, you might get three or four other emails from the different subject experts that have work that you're going to have to do. Wednesday, you might have to um, submit the assignments that we talked about, the deliverables on Monday or from last week. You might have to do some legal research. Thursday, you might be meeting with your firm and your mentor to review the files and to talk about the theme of um, uh, last week was uh, the business of law, for example. Uh, and then Thursday afternoon, you might have to schedule a time to meet with your firm to talk about your business plan. Friday comes around, you're getting more emails with more work to do or more information from a simulated law clerk or from the partner or from an associate. And you're constantly having to schedule your own time. The one thing I, I failed to say on time, and my apologies mm. to everybody, our program in the training, it, because it's a simulation of a work environment, your expectation is Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. to be available. So sometimes people say to me, can I do this if I'm working? And I say, no, because if you're working elsewhere, you're not going to be able to meet the commitments and satisfactorily complete the requirements of our program. Right. Some candidates are able to juggle sort of a, a part-time job in the evenings or on the weekends. Um, but this is a full-time commitment, just as articling would be. We're the equivalent of articling. Articling, you're not going to work uh, you know, for a job as well. Typically, that's your commitment, and that's what the LPP is as well. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay, so I mean, candidates have, let's say, successfully completed the virtual side of the LPP, and now it's time to venture off onto part two, which is the the, the work experience. And I suppose pre-COVID, all of that work experience would have been done in person on site. Correct. That is correct. Okay. So like the question would I have, I mean, obviously there's tons of questions, but, um, you know, I, I guess at some point you finish the virtual side of things and then you guys will have a session with with the candidates to say, OK, now here's the second part. And do, do candidates get to choose where they go? Like, how does that work? And yeah. what? Yeah, what, I guess just, just sort of jump in, Gina, by all means, and and <laughs> we'll see if um, I have any questions after. Absolutely. And so um, so the, the way to distinguish the two sessions, the training component is a simulated work placement, whereas the second part is an actual work placement. There's no simulation. It's live. It's real. Um, now, it had to be live up until COVID for now. Um, and, and because depending on the jurisdictions that you're in, within Ontario, at least, it could be either in person because courts are some courts are open, you know, there, there's that aspect. It could be in person, it could be partially uh, remote, or it could be some hybrid. The intention of it, though, remember, is that it's an actual, uh, there are real clients now. So the training part could, you could mess up with a client file, nobody would really be hurt, nobody would really be upset, you wouldn't lose any money. The second part is now actually happening. It's, it's real. Um, and in fact, we don't wait until the end, we start the summer before our program starts, we've started posting uh, opportunities with our incoming candidates. 
And it is a recruitment process. As you would find in sort of real life, we, we search out opportunities. We post them. Candidates have to apply. We send the uh, materials off to employers. They select who they want to interview. They have the interviews and they select then who the, uh, the successful candidates are. And this is going on from the summer before our program, the training starts, throughout the fall. I jokingly say we're probably the only employer, the, the simulated work placement is probably the only employer that actively tells you to look for that next job. Um, so, you know, you're, you're doing the training at the same time applying for these opportunities. And Anton, I will also say the following. While we seek out um, partnerships and placements for our candidates, there's also the opportunity to bring a placement to us. So if any of the listeners has a, an employer that potentially can offer them a four-month work opportunity, and one of the differences between us and Articling, um, Articling used to be 10 months. Now during COVID, it's eight months as well. But some employers don't want to or can't um, bring somebody on for a full eight months. So if somebody needs help for four months, they come to us, the candidate can come to us and say, you know, I've got a colleague, I've got an acquaintance, somebody in my network who has a need for a four-month work placement. Is this a doable placement for me? And in that instance, it doesn't go into our pool of opportunities that we circulate to everybody, but rather as long as the minimum requirements are met, that agreement is reached between the employer, the LPP, and the candidate. And they wrap up their 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 procurement of the placement in that way, um, and and that you know we have people doing that as well as applying to our positions. We are one of the things, Anton, that I will say, and I'll I'll ask the listeners to really think about. People come in with you know sort of a set frame of what they need to do or want to do. I have to work in corporate law. I have to work in family law. And what we encourage our candidates to do is to think really broadly. What skills are you trying to, be, to build? What kind of network are you trying to build? Are there other ways of building it? Is the GTA really the only place that you need to think about? Or can you expand that broadly? Because we have employers in Northern Ontario, Western, Eastern Ontario, um, and there's some really great experiences, both to complete the, the work placement, but also to get that opportunity. Sometimes, you know, we've had small firms uh, or solo practitioner who has taken on an, uh, a candidate and then has been so pleased with that person where they bring them into their, uh, their practice, uh, eventually to take over that practice. It, you know, it, it happens. And so um, the work placement is that opportunity to get to complete the experiential component, the, the eight months, uh, and to be able to build your network, to continue to build and develop your skills, and fundamentally to get licensed in Ontario. You don't necessarily, if you take on a a real estate uh, placement. You don't necessarily have to be practicing real estate forever and ever, but it'll at least take you to the point of completing your licensing uh, opportunity and then moving on. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and I mean, I guess, I okay, I'll get into that later. I have one question that I'll ask in a bit, but my, the, the follow-up to that, Gina, would be, I was wondering if you could provide me with some examples of, because what I've read and, and some of what I've heard is that the LPP will get in partnership with law firms, but also companies with in-house opportunities. Is that true? It is. And if you go to our website at lpp.ryerson.ca slash employers, down the page, you'll see a thank you ad. Every year we take out a thank you to our, you know, 200 plus employers who have, um, you'll see some for our mentors, but you'll also see the employers. And I'll just um, sort of give you a, a couple of ideas. Uh, we've been running so far 100% placement. So for anybody who successfully completes the training, they'll all go through a successful um, uh, work placement. Um, and our placement employers are, um, law firms across the province, small, mid, some large, uh, but we have clinics. We have the Canadian Association for Community Living, um, the Arch Disability Law Canada. We have Equifax, De Havilland. Uh, and, and this is, you know, it may vary from year to year. So this is what's online is sort of our last year's employers. Mm -hmm. Some uh, clinics, university legal departments, 
the Ministry of the Attorney General, uh, Insurance Bureau of Canada, University Health Network. So it crosses in terms of in-house counsel, about 30% of our positions are within in-house and it crosses industries. So as I, you know, I mentioned um, education, health, um, uh, uh, transportation, um, uh, technology, banking, we have some of the banks, and again, firms of all sizes and all three levels of, of government. So there really is a broad range of opportunities that are available to our candidates uh, for their work placements. That's, yeah, it sounds great. So um, do you have, like the when we were describing the virtual component of this, it really sounds like, and especially with the business planning, it really sounds like you're arming candidates with an opportunity if they want to eventually down the road start their own practice or hang their own shingle, um, as it were. You know, you're sort of arming them with an, an ability and a familiar familiarity to handle different kinds of files, um, but also to think about the business side. Do you have any sense of uh, like what? your alumni do after the LPP program? Like I, I would assume that varies greatly, um, but um, I, I mean, I guess there are some who would stay on perhaps with, with somebody that they're doing their four month term with. There are some who start on their own. Do you have any like sense of what most candidates do or is it really just all over the map? It really is varied. So we have now 1300 alums out in the profession and they are, again, either some of them are sole practitioners, they've decided to hang out their shingle and feel, you know, what I've heard from them is I feel confident to do so because of the training that I got in the LPP. Mm. Some are working for either their original uh, placement or somebody that they've met through that network or through that experience. Some of them are working uh, in-house. And one of, you know, one of my uh, favorite stories is uh, we have a couple of candidates who are in-house, who started their placements in-house, are now in senior positions and have come back and, you know, now hire our current LPP candidates for work placements. So the cycle is definitely, uh, is definitely there. And, and, and it's that community and that strength and confidence that I think is really beneficial to anybody considering the law practice program as their option for, uh, for this opportunity. But I, I did want to also highlight, Anton, not only are alumni moving in different um, parts of, uh, of experiences in, within the province, but we also, so, so the simulated virtual law firm gives us a, uh, a format and a tool to be able to develop those skills. Recognizing a few years back, uh, there are a couple of innovations that we did, recognizing that um, some lawyers will be working in-house, some of our candidates will be working in-house, we came up with a group of uh, corporate counsel who have put together a corporate counsel intensive. And so they do workshops with the candidates. They um, do scenarios to get the candidates thinking from that perspective, you know, from an in-house business perspective, what will, what will they be doing as lawyers or future lawyers uh, working within businesses as legal counsel? And this year, what we were it was, it, we've always had the support of these in-house counsel, but this year, because of COVID over the summer, my, my core group said, you know, how are we going to get people to know and to get to know your candidates and for them to know our, you know, members of the profession. So what we instituted this year were corporate counsel coffee chats. And every couple of weeks, we have about five to six different lawyers from different in-house organizations having informal Zoom coffee chats. And they'll tell the candidates about what they're doing, they'll meet the candidates and sort of exchange those ideas because even though our platform is on a simulated firm basis, mm. we know that many will end up in in-house. And so we wanted to have that voice and that experience for the candidates as well. Oh, sounds great. And I think um, you mentioned the word community earlier and that's sort of partly why I got involved in this podcast. Um, I mean, I also, I just kind of am a bit of a podcast nerd, um, but also, <laughs> and, you know, building the, the Toronto School of Management NCA prep program as well. Um, community is important, I think, for internationally trained lawyers. And I think it would be good if you could just quickly touch on um, you know, you mentioned maybe per, about half of the candidates that are on the LPP program are internationally trained, and I think they might benefit from hearing from you 
um, how, what you've observed, you know, are there areas that, that they should focus on or think of, start thinking about when they're, um, you know, completing their NCAs or even before they're completing their NCAs and thinking about making them move, um, anything they can improve or hone, any skills they can hone? Yeah, no, and thank you for that question. Um, community is really important. And for us, trying to build that community online, of course, is something we've been doing for the past seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, past, we have the chance for three in-person weeks, um, but we don't have that this year. One of the things that we do with our law firms, the virtual law firms, is that we put people randomly into law firms. So in any given law firm, you will be dealing with somebody who may be internationally trained from a different jurisdiction or the same jurisdiction and or um, a, a law school graduate from somewhere else in Canada. So that ability to, to be able to um, meet with and get to know people with different experiences really is a benefit and a strength of the program. And as well, then connecting with lawyers from Ontario who can help foster that, uh, that network even more. And not just lawyers, but from the, as the mentors, as, uh, as the groups that we've talked about. But what are the areas that we've noticed? Um, so just last week, I actually had a conversation with a brilliant, bright individual um, from another jurisdiction who said, you know, the one thing you keep talking to us about uh, is legal research and writing. And honestly, you know, I think I underestimated um, the difference between my experience in legal research and what the baseline expectation is, because we're expecting sort of that baseline expectation. Mm. And she and I were talking, she made me realize, and I've heard this before, different jurisdictions, legal education includes different levels or varied levels of uh, experience in legal research. So in some jurisdictions, it may be a course, in others, it may not be, and it may not actually be a, an expectation to some degree in, in, in the practice of law. Uh, and I think understanding that Legal research and analysis is a critical expectation for the practice for the call to the bar in Ontario is critical. So when you're doing your NCA exams as you're preparing, and you know it, it's one thing to prepare an NCA exam fact-based, look ahead, think about what your barrister and solicitor's exams are. Those are all multiple choice. Mm -hmm. But then practice, what is it that lawyers do? They take they take facts from a client. No client is going to come to you and say, I have a civil litigation matter in ABC. They're going to come and say, my employer let me go last time and I don't have any money to deal with. You have to come up with a law to, mm. be, to, uh, to figure out what to do for that client. So the ability to, to factually research, then legally research, and then apply the facts to that law and do an analysis of what's necessary is critical. And my conversation with this woman last uh, last week really, really struck a chord because it's something that I've heard many candidates tell me from different jurisdictions um, and even from some Canadian schools where legal research is a full year course in year one, and then there's no legal research necessarily for the next two years. Um, so, you know, that's one area that I think is critical. The other area, Anton, is probably in communications. Um, there's two areas, communications brought specifically uh, in terms of being able to function at a, um, at a level, a professional level, right? Because you are expected to be able to serve clients uh, professionally and appropriately. But there's also the other element. You and I have talked about this in the past, the cultural understanding of what the profession and what the um, client expectations are uh, within the province of Ontario. And being able to understand what that's like um, is helpful. So let me just pause and see if you have any comments or questions. No, no, I just find myself nodding my head. I've heard um, what, you're, what you're saying about legal research and its importance. And now, you know, legal communication, it's sort of, you know, I mean, I'm working with um, Rebecca Lockwood, who's the founder of Grammatica. And I mean, I think you know Rebecca as well. And she's she's big into legal communication and legal research skills development. And uh, we kind of incorporated that because we've heard the same things that you were saying here. And I think it's important for everybody to hear it because um, it can often be sort of a forgotten 
element of this whole process. Like you said, you know, studying for the NCA exams, people will just do that. And then, um, you know, the, the skills, the soft skills that, that are required are, can often be forgotten until, you know, unfortunately, it's a bit too late. Yeah. And, and Anton, the other, and I think Rebecca's fabulous. I'm a huge fan of hers. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, remember the skill or competency that we talk about, about practice management. What does that mean from a uh, from a practical perspective, this is where we oftentimes, uh, oftentimes ask our candidates to think about in advance. The, on a fundamental basis, practice management means, uh, I, I can't believe in this, in this day, people don't have a calendar, for example, hmm. whether it's on your phone, whether it's a hard copy calendar, whether it's on your laptop, but being able to actually plan put in dates, put in deadlines, plan backwards. That's part of what a lawyer has to do. Um, we were we were speaking with the one of our guests two weeks ago, last week was uh, from the mandatory legal insurer here in Ontario, Law Pro. And to many people's surprise, the main areas of claims by clients against lawyers in Ontario, number one, and you may have already seen this stat, is communications. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lack of communication. So that that's critical. Uh, so when we talk about factual and legal communication, that is critical. Um, time management is the second. And so being able to juggle your competing. So when people say to us, can I work full time and also do the LPP? I'll look at them and say, how many hours in the day do you have that I don't have? <laughs> you know, two jobs is, is a really difficult thing. Something's going to give. And most of our most of our candidates, Anton, have a family or, you know, it's the typical scenario. And, mm -hmm. and you really need to think about this as a full time commitment. Um, the other thing I will say is that candidates will ask me, can we write the licensing exams during the LPP? Because licensing exams are offered. Remember, the LSO licensing exams are offered a few times a year. Our strong recommendation is that you complete those exams beforehand or after, because if you're doing them during everything else, it's a lot to juggle. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to do it during the work placement, your employer may not, they don't have to give you time off or uh, allow you to, to necessarily study for that because our goal in the LPP, our mandate with the Law Society is to test, to develop, and then to test your experiential competencies. It's not to test the substantive. That's not our mandate. So for eight months, our focus with our candidates has to be on those skills. The substantive law that you're learning, you've got to do it either before or after. So that time management is a critical, and people I think underestimate how difficult, how challenging that could be at times. Mm, yeah, no, I, I, when I was um, shadowing a lawyer in, out of, uh, in Brampton, he was a criminal law lawyer, he lived um, by his calendar. <laughs> like he, mm -hmm. he, had, he had one of those old traditional leather bound book calendars and, um, you know, marked it up with pen all the time. And, and I noticed that everybody else was kind of doing the same thing. So I think that's, that's a really good thing that you hit on time management's important too. Um, and uh, Gina, it's, it's been almost an hour now. So I'm going to, I'm going to wind down with a couple of fun questions. And then, well, I suppose fun, relatively speaking, and then um, a, a one other practical question about the LPP program. So um, curious, you've been at this and you mentioned at the beginning that you've, you've always had a passion for teaching. Um, and it's, it you know, obviously this is a, a really great program that you've built. And I'm wondering what continues to inspire you to be the head of, of, of this Ryerson LPP program. Well, thank you for the, the comment and the feedback, first of all. And I think, um, it, the ability to see the growth in individuals, and I'll, I'll give you two different examples. When people start in late August, and then we get to December, and they've got learning, uh, as you know, learning can be messy. Learning is scary. And, and our, I, I remind people, you are not learning if you stay in your comfort zone. You only learn once you're out of your comfort zone, which means that it can be a little uncomfortable and messy. And that's Okay, that's when you're developing the skills. But when I see people in August, and then I see them again in December, and they say to me, Oh, my God, the confidence I've built up, the skills that I've built up, I can hear it in them, I can see it in them. 
Our mentors are commenting about it. The members of the profession who interact with them are commenting about it. And then they go on to do great work in their work placement. That itself is a huge, huge reason. Then what I described earlier, when our alums call us, because we've now had 13, you know, seven years, 1,300 alums are in the community. When I get a note um, from them, either on LinkedIn or, or uh, through email to say, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing now. I, I'm, you know, I've just opened up my own practice if they're sort of two or three years out or today's note, which said, hey, remember me? I've, I've just hired a, uh, a more junior LPP person to, to join me as a junior counsel. That just makes me sore because I, happy, <laughs> uh, not sore, but uh, happy because mm. again, it, number one, it shows me that the, the LPP works. It works to develop the skills and it also works in terms of developing a community and a network of really strong, bright individuals who are making a difference in the profession. Mm, that's great. And I think, again, it's sort of you're hitting on um, that community. Um, aspect of things and really building up the the professional and and personal uh, development too of people. That's it's really I can only imagine how rewarding that would be. Um, and and then I guess my second question for you is, um, like I said on fa- earlier, somebody on Facebook was asking if this program is thirty grand. <laughs> it's not, um, but there's a lot of misinformation that exists about a lot. Believe me, I mean I, I know you know, and I know. Um, because people come to me with all kinds of questions that, you know, you're kind of shocked at what they think the answer is. Um, So I'm wondering, in your experience, what is the one thing you wish people knew about the LPP program and or the accreditation journey in Canada? Like what kind of crops up that you kind of bang your head against the wall and wish, oh, I wish people knew this? So let's just clarify the cost. And we were going to do Um, We forgot. So let's just put that on the table. This is um, a law society of Ontario licensing program, which means that our, we don't, people don't pay anything to Ryerson directly. Mm. They pay the regular um, licensing fees to the law society. So whatever you're going to pay as an, uh, as an articling student, you're going to pay as a, uh, an LPP candidate. And that goes directly to the law society. So one of the things again, to be aware of, Uh, And this is important as you're planning your own journey, you have fees associated with the NCA for your exams, then you also have fees associated with licensing, and those are both for the exams that you're going to write, and then for the experiential piece. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that for either articling or LPP is about 5000 this year. And again, whenever people are going through, they should verify in that individual year, we do not receive that information or that uh, that money directly from the candidate. Um, so that's a LSO um, uh, cost. And it's 5,000 that they're, uh, they're paying for the experience fees. And then of course, a couple more thousand for the licensing exams. The other question that we get, Anton, is um, is there a, a cap or an admissions requirement? And we don't have that. So mm. let's just explain how you would come into our program. Depending on where you are in the, license, in the accreditation process, um, thinking ahead, Sometime in December or January, uh, the licensing candidate portal will open up at the Law Society. You will need to register with the Law Society of Ontario to become a licensing candidate. You can do that, as Deborah Wolf probably told you. And if you don't know who Deborah Wolf is, go back and listen to Anton's uh, podcast with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you could register for the Law Society's licensing process as you are completing your uh, your. Uh, NCA exams. It's the equivalent of the third year students in law school here in Ontario would register with the Law Society in January uh, of their last year, just like you would be registering in the January as you're completing your exams. Mm. You need to complete all of your exams and receive your CQ, your certificate of qualification, before you start with us in August, just like you would need it before you start articling. Um, but you can start that process in January. So don't leave it until the end, start it earlier. Um, and we don't have a cap or a minimum of the number of candidates. Once you register for licensing, you then have an opportunity to select either the LPP or articling. And my comment to everybody is, if first of all, I think you would select LPP right away. But if for whatever reason you're second guessing yourself and 
Uh, if you don't have an, uh, an article position, definitely select the LPP. There's a pathway for you to get licensed. It's a mm-hmm. really great experience for you to get licensed. So don't worry if you don't have an, uh, an article position, that's okay. We are the equivalent and we're going to give you a really great experience. But if you're still unsure, you could always select the LPP. And if you get that article job of a lifetime, by all means, we're going to applaud you and we're going to say, great, go for it. You can always change your selection with the Law Society up to a certain date, um, but there's lots of time to do so. So there's, Anton, there's no downside. Mm. And if I say there's an upside uh, to stay, to respond to what you said earlier, you saw on Facebook, everybody has a pathway to licensing as long as they register for it with the Law Society. There you go. I hope everybody listening is taking notes. <laughs> uh, that's that's great. And and you sort of you you took the practical question out of my mouth by by answering and saying how what the cost was and how that works because I think that's important to understand um, exactly how that works. So that's good. Thank you for that. Anton, can I also just one more thing that I wish I I wish people uh, I could say to people if I had one on one conversations. Can I just take a minute? Of course. Yeah. Please. And that's not to rush. Um, I often have conversations, especially with internationally educated, internationally trained people who may have had careers abroad and are coming here. And there's this intensity to get through the process. And I understand there's a pride issue. There's a, look, I can't be studying for my whole life. There's a financial reason that they need to to go through it. Um, But it's a process. And if you if you are juggling other life commitments or other, you know, financial commitments at the same time, um, you want to make sure you have the energy, the time, the capacity to really do things well and properly. And so, you know, don't rush through things in a year or two years. If it takes you a little bit longer, that's okay. Um, you you want to do it well, you want to do it successfully, but also in a healthy way as well. Um, I see far too many people who try and push through, and that impacts finances, it impacts career, uh, their themselves, their, their physical and mental health. There's no need to rush through it. You've got a plan. You've got a goal. There are processes. Know what those processes are. Know what those expectations are and work through it. It's you know, a good friend of mine used to say, this is, um, this is not a marathon, uh, right? Sorry, it's not a race. It's a marathon. Um, mm-hmm. So those small steps that you take to get to the end goal will certainly serve you in good stead. Amazing. And on that note, Gina, I think we'll end this. Um, I, I mean, I really appreciate all the insights. I feel like I want to go on the LPP program now. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a really great opportunity for candidates who, who may not have known about it, who might want to know more information. So again, thanks so much for sharing everything you did today. My pleasure, lpp at ryerson.ca if anybody has any questions. Uh, And I hope to meet a few of the listeners over the next year uh, during our LPP. Great, great. Thank you, Gina. Thanks, Anton. Bye-bye. And that does it for episode 18 of A Shot of Life hard to believe 18 episodes already anyway i'd like to thank gina alexandris for taking time out i mean to spend an hour with me um, to talk to me about her experiences and i I guess i I know more importantly the lpp program there are so many questions about ryerson's law practice program and um you know the the information that she was able to give i hope really really cements the fact that it's an awesome program and um uh, a legitimate equivalent to articling. I think it, it offers a lot of benefits to its candidates, especially what I found really interesting was that they take you kind of through um, a bit of a module on how to build your own practice, if that's what you choose to do after being called to the bar. So um, again, I, I can't thank Gina enough, and I hope that you managed to glean something from this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, we'll speak again.